Alleluia, Christ is risen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I was reminded earlier this week, just throughout the normal course of the services, how much the crucifixion of Jesus looms large in the spirituality of the church, but also in the way that we do theology. All of it seems to flow to and from the cross. A podcast that I was listening to earlier this week also pointed this out to me, something I didn't really know before, but our Book of Concord, which is our Lutheran confessions, what we believe about the Bible, and any number of topics, sort of the ins and outs of Lutheranism, doesn't really have a lot to say about the resurrection itself. I checked the, spirit, the scriptural references in the back, and there are only a few references to the Gospels and the resurrection accounts contained therein. You, in fact, can count it on less than one hand how many references to the resurrection there are. Now, that's not to say that the Reformers didn't think that Jesus' resurrection wasn't important, but it really shows that the cross is our theology. Saying, even, Christ is risen, is built on the fact that he was crucified, that he died, that he was buried. And from the cross, Jesus even says, it is finished. We heard the choirs remind us of that a few minutes ago. And so with that, I can't help and wonder sometimes if we might feel that Easter, and this is going to sound weird this morning, we can't help but feel that Easter is almost a little bit of a letdown. And then, we come to our gospel reading for today. We don't have an appearance of the resurrected Christ at all. Go back and look. Mark 16, 1-8, no appearance of Jesus. What's more is this gospel reading has been the Easter gospel reading for thousands, uh, more than a thousand years at this point in the church. We have the faithful women who've come to the tomb to prepare the body of Jesus after his death. We have the appearance of the angel, the announcement that he is risen from the dead, even though he's not there and we don't see him, the angels tell the women that he's not there, but him we do not meet. The women are even shown the place. Look, this is where he was laid after they brought him into the tomb. But again, he's not there either. They are told to tell Peter and the boys that they are to go and find him in Galilee, like he said that he would. But instead of that, they flee. They run away from the tomb because they are afraid, and they don't tell nobody nothing. So today is the perfect time to think about the place of the resurrection in the life of the church. Probably the best place to go is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is known as the great resurrection chapter in the Bible. In fact, our epistle reading for today is a cutting from that chapter. St. Paul starts off with these words. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Those words make their way into the Nicene Creed, by the way, which we just confessed. I mention them here because St. Paul, writing on the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that the resurrection of Jesus is, along with his suffering and death, of first importance. That is, there is nothing more important than these things. Now mark that well. There is nothing more important than these things. Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection are all on equal footing, and they are the most important thing. If any of these things go missing, well, then we're lost. We're in big trouble. The next part of that chapter reveals the problem on the ground there in Corinth which is a problem that still affects the world today. Some of the Christians in Corinth did not believe that the faithful dead would be raised on the last day. St. Paul's contention is that the resurrection is an all or nothing event. Either all the dead rise on the last day or nobody is raised. And he says, that if the dead are not raised, then not even Jesus is raised from the dead. And that's where the wheels really begin to fall off. For if Jesus isn't really raised, then there's a whole host of problems. He goes on to write, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. I'm wasting my time, he says, and your faith is also in vain. He goes on to say that if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then all of your loved ones, those who have fallen asleep in the faith, well, they're simply gone forever. You will never see them again if Jesus is not raised from the dead. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, our only hope is that this life right here that we are living in, our only hope is that this will get better because there's nothing coming after it. And he goes on to conclude by saying that if Christ is not raised from the dead, we above all people are most to be pitied. This helps us understand perhaps the fear that the women expressed at the tomb. Even the disciples were afraid. You'll remember that they too were hiding behind a locked door in the upper room, according to both Luke and John in their Gospels. So if Jesus isn't really raised from the dead, as the women supposed, as the disciples believed, then the world really is a terrifying place, and there is no place to hide. Dear friends in Christ, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, not only are you wasting your time being here, but you are a people without hope. 
If Jesus is not raised, then we should go home right now and start living our best lives because, well, folks, this is it. This is all there is. This is the materialistic worldview that pervades communism and atheism, that nothing really matters. The universe, the world, your jobs, your families, none of these things actually matter if Jesus is not raised from the dead. The universe will continue to spin without meaning or care. If Jesus is not raised, people will be born and they will die without any real meaning or lasting impact on the world. If Jesus is not raised, when you die, you're gone. You're simply snuffed out of existence. kind of heavy. But St. Paul changes the direction of all of that in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, when he says, but, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. To put it another way, alleluia, Christ is risen. What does that even mean? Well, it means that just as death came by Adam, now the resurrection to eternal life comes through the second Adam, Christ Jesus. Death is put under his feet. Death has lost its sting because it no longer reigns over us. And Christ has given to us the victory over death and has made it nothing more than a cushy footstool that we can prop our feet up on in the afternoon. Christ's victory over death has made it so that death is nothing more than a peaceful nap, which will be so easy to wake us from on the last day. It'll be like my kids this afternoon when I'm trying to doze off and take my well-earned Easter afternoon nap. They'll just come over screaming through the room. You get, you get the picture. Jesus is going to wake us up on the last day as easy as pie. People loved by God, because Jesus is raised from the dead, everything is now changed. Consider what Luke says in Luke 24 about the disciples, for instance. When Jesus appeared to them in the upper room, they were startled. They were frightened. When they saw Jesus, they thought that he was a ghost. And then he invited them to look at his wounds in his hands and his feet and his side. And in the case of Thomas, we know from John, he invites him to touch his wounds and put his hand into his side. We'll hear about that next week, by the way. And when they see that he, in fact, is raised from the dead, that is not simply a ghost that is standing there in their midst, Luke, with the understatement of the century, says, and the disciples were glad. Because Jesus is raised from the dead, death has been knocked off its throne. It no longer reigns supreme. And if death no longer reigns over us, what in the world do we have to be afraid of? Psalm 27.1 The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I be afraid? 
What can the forces of darkness do to a world that now is won and bought and paid for by the light of the world? What can death do to the one who belongs to the one who is the resurrection and the life? What can the outrage mobs and the sexual revolu revolutionaries do with the one who has been reconciled to the Father? And the answer, dear saints, is nothing. If not one sparrow falls from the ground apart from the knowledge of our Heavenly Father, how much more does he care for the one whose hairs are numbered, who has been bought by the blood of Jesus. Dear saints, I want you to, just for a moment, consider what your fears are this day. And I know here in church with the lights on and the sun out, it's maybe hard to think about what you might be afraid of, but just think for a moment, what are you afraid of? Are you afraid? That your body is succumbing to age or disease, or do you fear that for a loved one? Are you afraid of death? Are you afraid that your sins have driven a wedge between you and God in heaven? What are you afraid of? Well, today, because Christ is raised from the dead and everything is now changed, I urge you. Do not be afraid. Jesus is not among the dead because he is risen. And because he is risen, your baptism into his death and resurrection is your inoculation against death. Just as he has joined his suffering to your suffering at the cross, so also now he will join your resurrection from the dead on the last day to his resurrection from the dead nearly 2,000 years ago. He is the first fruits of those who will rise from the dead. And because death could not hold him, it certainly cannot hold you because you belong to him. There is nothing to be afraid of any longer because Jesus is raised from the dead. Let's look at one more example from the apostles. In Acts chapter 5, the disciples were commanded, do not preach in the name of Jesus Christ. In fact, later on in that chapter, as they were doing it, they were arrested for that, saying it was a crime. Many of the Sadducees wanted to kill the disciples, but Peter stood up when they charged him again and threatened him with his life. They, he said... Peter said, we must obey God rather than men. This, by the way, is the same Peter who just on Good Friday was afraid that a servant girl might have recognized him as somewhat associated with Jesus who was on trial. Peter, knowing that Jesus was raised from the dead, was no longer afraid of what was to come. And church history tells us that all of the apostles, all of them but one, and you've heard me say this before, all of them died as martyrs to the Christian faith. What changed from running away in the Garden of Gethsemane to dying a martyr's death? 
Jesus rose from the dead. That's what changed. And so I now ask you, what are you afraid of? Now ask yourself, what can your fear do to Jesus? He is raised from the dead, and he has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he has promised to govern all things for your good, even taking the evil that you face in this life or will face in this life and turning it on its head. We heard St. Paul say, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Alleluia. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. And now the peace of God, which passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus our Lord.